Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? We're talking about the power of preaching, and this is the first sermon that was preached uh, in the first sermon after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. Love singing that song, those songs. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. Everything is in the question, who is Jesus? When folks say your religion works, if it's good for you, that's great. Or they don't see the importance, the significance, and the value of the Savior that they spurn. In our popular speech, he is a cuss word. I hear it all the time. In their eyes, Jesus is not worth worshiping. He is not worth reverencing. He is not worth bowing down to. He is simply a historical figure, one who may or may not even existed, one who died, who was probably a good teacher, or maybe he was a man who was not completely mentally all there. He certainly could not be God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, destined to die for the sins of man. Because if that were true, my whole life would have to change. If in fact that was true, you see, no matter the arguments that people say, if in fact it is true that Jesus Christ is God and he died on the cross, then I have to change my life. Then the life I have been living as spurning him, not allowing him to have authority over my life, is false and I have to bow. And see, that's where the contention explodes. It doesn't explode if you say you're a Christian. That's okay to the world. It doesn't explode when you say you go to church, even. It's even okay to say that you believe in Christ, but when you say Jesus is the only Savior, and you must receive Him as your only Lord and Savior, and bow the knee to Him, that is where the sin of man comes out. And the heart reviles against it. The heart says, I will not have Him over me. Anger and hostility come out. Now they charge you as you bring the gospel, they charge you of being you are unloving. You are judgmental. You are hateful. You have hate speech. That's all you say. You're close-minded. You're archaic. You're antiquated. You're anti-intellectual. You're stupid. When you stand for the true Christ of the Bible, the promised Messiah, God is glorified, but man's sin is in full display. Man will either repent or become hardened in sin. Peter, fully convinced of the glory and majesty of Christ, now is explaining who he is. His sermon started with his first point, if you recall, starting in verse 14 all the way to 21. His sermon started with his first point of discussing the gift of the Holy Spirit. His second point now is the very center of the gospel message. It is Christ's credentials as the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and die for the sins of man. It is the very center of the gospel. It is the message of the apostles. It is the apostles' teaching that is repeated over and over and over again. 
It is what was even read by Mike in 1 Corinthians 15. It is a story, a simple story of Christ that is rejected and reviled. Verse 22, we'll read from 22 to 36. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. In your myths, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You, have, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. For your feet, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. God gave this passage so you would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is the true Messiah. He gave this passage so you would believe in the gospel of Christ, that he is the true Messiah. Messiah. This is what Peter is proving. And this is what it, we hope to, by God's grace, uh, we hope to prove to you as you sit there and you hear this. Now, to believe in Christ as the true Messiah, the anointed one, God gives us four credentials of Christ. Four credentials that prove Jesus is the true Messiah. These are the credentials that Peter himself says, the evidences that Peter himself says. And his first evidence of his credential that Jesus is the true Messiah is Jesus' Jesus's life, verse 22. Jesus' life. Notice he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You have to understand, this is Peter standing. He is there 50 days after Christ has resurrected. He remembers that Jesus was put to death. He remembers the very same people who accused him, who brought him to before illegal tribunal three times and allowed his death to occur. 
And now this Peter who ran from a slave girl when he was asked, weren't you with Christ? And he says, no, no. And he cursed and then he ran and he wept bitterly, groaning. It's, It's the word used for an animal when it's caught in a trap. He was groaning. He was so sad and distraught of his failure, of his lack of loyalty, of his lack of courage. He disowned Christ and he ran off. This Peter who was scared now says to these people, because he has seen the risen Christ, because now he has seen who he is. He saw the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, Christ who conquered death. He looks them in the eye, the same murderers who killed Christ. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. The same murderers now. Listen to me. This is an imperative. He says, heed. Listen. Peter, who once cowarded, now is courageous and commands the Jews to listen. He is no longer afraid. You see, when you catch a glimpse of Christ, when you truly know who he is, you're no longer afraid of what people think of you. You don't care what people say of you. You don't care if people say things about you. If you truly know Christ, you will say who he is. You will confess who he is. And that's what Peter says. Background is in this idea of the Messiah. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene. And he's going to talk about this idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Israel did know that there was someone, a servant who was coming. But in their minds, they weren't able to separate the scriptures that says that he was coming, he was going to suffer, but he was also going to conquer, and they couldn't reconcile the two. In Genesis 49.10, just to give you some verses, they remember the prophecy that was given to the tribe of Judah. And he says, in 49.10, it says, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is a symbol of rule. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Someone was coming in the line of Judah. Someone who would rule. We know that this rule would be unending. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever. And so the people of Israel knew there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't think he would come like this. They didn't think he would come to die. And so Peter, choosing his words carefully, He comes out and he says, Jesus, the Nazarene, or Jesus, the one from Nazareth. Which is interesting that Peter would say that. He doesn't doesn't say Jesus, the Lord of glory, like Paul would say. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, the only sovereign, which he will say later on, right? But he says Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, of Nazareth, because he wanted to show that the humble man that grew up in a Galilean town... He wanted to stress Jesus' humanity and his humility that he would grow up in obscurity. God would come in the flesh and live in a town that no one cared about. In his humility for 30 years, he wouldn't care. He was doing his father's will until he was released to ministry. The one who you took of no account, the one you said was a nobody, this Jesus of Nazarene, 
the simple one who you thought was a nothing, the one you thought was a nobody, is the promised Messiah, anointed one, whom you were waiting for, but you would not believe because you didn't think he would come humbly. See, this is the same reaction of the unbeliever to Christ today, brothers and sisters. Jesus, to many unbelievers, was simply a man who could not possibly be God in the flesh to die for my sins. Jesus is not great. He is not majestic. He is not God. So I simply would think of him as of little import. Peter says, this is one of the evidences that he's the Messiah. He says, his evidence is, is a man attested to you. Notice he says, by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your myths. The word therefore attested means to point out. The whole proof of wonders and miracles and signs were to point to who he is. To show forth, to exhibit, to make known by deed or word, to show by argument, to prove, to demonstrate. And he says, what is his proof? Well, there are miracles, wonders, and signs. And folks say, well, that's not proof. The reason why it's not proof is because miracles don't exist. Signs don't exist. Wonders don't exist. And I asked them, well, what's your proof that wonders and signs and miracles don't exist? Well, because it doesn't exist. That's why because it doesn't exist, then it didn't happen. Well, how do you know it didn't happen? Because it doesn't exist. And you see the circular reasoning go on. It didn't happen that way. There's no way it could happen. Where's your evidence? Because it didn't exist. And it keeps going over and over. What is, if there is a sovereign God who could miraculously create the universe out of nothing, surely he can interpose into nature and miraculously intervene. And that's exactly what he did to show his sovereignty, his power over all of creation. Now, he uses three terms. Miracles. First one, the word miracles is a deed of power. It emphasizes the supernatural nature of the deed. The word for wonders, you can call that a marvel. It emphasizes the experience of marveling at the deed. So the first one, miracle, shows the power of it. It's actually from the root word dunamis where we get dynamite, the power of that deed. And then the second one is the wonder, or it's the experience that I feel in my mind and in my heart by experiencing what just happened. I am awestruck, maybe you could say that word. I'm dumbfounded. It's emphasizing the experience of marveling at the deed. And the last word is signs. It's the miracle pointing to a divine origin. That emphasized that the miraculous deed has occurred, but it points to a deeper spiritual truth. I often use the example of this, that if you see one of our sandwich board signs, it says Redeemer Bible Church on the way up, and you stop and you start singing praise songs at the sign, you miss the point of the sign. The sign is to point you over here, Right? The sign is to bring you over here. And so what Jesus is saying and what God is saying about Jesus is that the sign points to who he is. And clearly, that's what Peter is saying as well. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God 
performed through him in your midst. You remember when Nicodemus went to Christ. There was something about Christ that Nicodemus had to go and talk to him about. But you remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he didn't want people to see him talk with Jesus. So what he did was he went at nighttime. And he went at nighttime to secretly speak with Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, Rabbi, he comes to Jesus. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. And then Nicodemus says these words. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And even Nicodemus is awestruck. And he knows what's happening. That there is someone who breaks history. Who breaks all other conceptions. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Then it says, which God performed through him in your myths, just as you yourselves know. Jesus did nothing on his own initiative. He did exactly what the Father wanted. He shared the same glory as the Father because he himself is God who submitted himself through the Father, to the Father. Then he says, in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And he is already starting the accusation. You saw what he did and you killed him anyways. You saw the works that he has done and you killed him anyways. They knew very well. They even saw the miracles. You see, folks say, this is interesting, okay? I remember I was sharing the gospel with a, a guy on my college campus, and I never knew what happened to him afterwards. And, and, he, and he didn't believe in the miracles. He didn't believe in the signs and in the wonders. Although there was documentation, although people died for this Christ, okay? The cowards died for this Christ. Uh, over 500 witnesses saw him. 120 witnesses saw him over and over. Even Josephus, the historian, the secular historian, knows that there was a Christ who died, right? And yet, people still deny it. I often ask them, well, what would you think if Jesus did, if God did come in the flesh, what would he do? What would he have to do to convince you that he was God? I ask them that question. I asked him that question. I never asked that question before, but I asked him, if, if God did come in the flesh, what would he do to convince you that he was God? And he said, well, maybe he would make the sun turn into dark. And I flipped over to Luke, back the end of Luke, where it says where he died, the sun became darkness. I said, there. He did it right there. Right there. Now will you believe? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Let me ask you. What could God possibly do that would make you believe? Because if you think about it, he has done the most fantastic, glorious signs and miracles. He healed the paralytic. He caused leprosy to fall away. He gave sight to the blind. He caused people who had broken limbs to walk. He rose people from the dead. He himself, Jesus, was rose, risen from the dead. He has caused 
He has caused the veil in the temple to rip from bottom to the top. He has caused darkness to, ca uh, to fall upon the land. All these things that you could say over and over with documentation and with the biblical record. And as I say that and unveil it, you would think that people would say, well, yeah, well, you know what? Now that you said that, I guess I, I, guess I do want to become a Christian. No, they will not. They will not unless their hearts are changed. You could layer the evidence over and over again. You could put it over before their face. And this is what Jesus says. Look at John chapter 15. This is Peter preaching to a tough crowd, right? John chapter 15. Matthew in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 15. Look at verse 18. This is what Jesus says. This is how you should, this is what you should expect if you are a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to him, them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. You know, who fo folks who say, oh, I love God, but I, I don't want to follow Jesus. Or I love God or an, uh, an idea of God. Or I worship God in the ocean. Or I worship God at the gym and they don't bow the knee to Christ, you're a liar. The Bible says you hate God. Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. So very opposite very opposite of what folks would say. If I just see the miracles, I'm going to believe. The very opposite thing happens. Jesus Christ comes. He does these miraculous deeds before people to show who he is, to fulfill the credentials as the Messiah. And as he does this, instead of flocking to him, the majority of folks flocking to him, Saying, doing what they said they would do. Jesus says, their heart reviles against me. What is that? Why is that so? The Bible says that man is polluted with sin. That after the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve acted as our um, representative 
And because of their sin, it was passed down to us. And because of that, we have been tainted. Our minds, our hearts, and our wills have been tainted by sin. And we would not pursue God. We would not pursue a relationship with him on his terms. And in fact, anything we do, we could never earn forgiveness because God is perfect and we are not. And so for us to bridge that chasm between us, God himself came down to us in the form of a man, taking on the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And instead of us paying him to get into his heaven by virtuous deeds and all, all and whatnot, he paid us. And in this glorious exchange, our sins were put on him. His righteousness was put on us. And it can be applied only through belief and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And if you put your trust in Christ alone, the Bible says, if you believe in Christ with your heart and confess him with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says, you will be saved. That is Jesus' life. Secondly, turn to him. First, the first credential is Jesus' life. The second credential is Jesus' death. Verse 23, he starts out in Acts chapter 2. An incredible passage. This is a unique death. The one whom God performed miracles through, Peter is saying, you hated, you rejected, and you killed him. And truth be told, before I was in Christ, and before any of us were in Christ, the Bible says our hearts go right along with the crowd. We don't want him as king over us. But yet, in his death, there is freedom. And so, two aspects of Jesus' death, which is miraculous, okay? Two aspects. The first one is his death was specifically planned by a sovereign God, okay? His death was specifically planned by a sovereign God. God. Notice he says here, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, in the text, you cannot go away from the forcefulness, from the clarity of this text. Notice he says here, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What you thought you were doing in your illegal court proceedings and your conniving you thought you got the best of Christ. And Peter says he was not bested by men. Jesus' death was ultimately planned. Listen, Jesus' death was ultimately planned and orchestrated by God the Father himself. Many folks have a problem with this. Even some Christians have a problem with this. But the text is very, very clear. As we shall see, in order for you to fully appreciate the cross, I don't think you could fully appreciate the cross unless you understand 
the whole Trinity's involvement at the cross. You can't fully appreciate the cross. You can't fully appreciate the grace you have to know what, in fact, God did. So let's take a look at the text here. He says here, this man, it's interesting he uses this word, this man. He is pointing back to their belief of Jesus. You thought he was just a man. He's using language to just go back to him. This one, you thought he was just a man. You thought he was of no repute. You thought he was a no one, a son of a carpenter, probably born of fornication. You thought he was just a man. And he says he was delivered up. The word there means to be given up. It means to be handed over. It is a, Jesus, Judas gave up Jesus to the Jewish leaders. The Jews gave him up to Roman, to the Romans. But ultimately, think about this, brothers and sisters. Ultimately, it was God who gave his son up for That's why John 3.16 is much more powerful. It is not a football stadium verse that you put simply on a poster board and then people mock and then they take the 3.16 and then they put their first name and then they put the 3.16 right after. They mock it. You see, Christ is always mocked. Buddha is not mocked. Muhammad is hardly ever mocked. Christ is always mocked. Why? It's the hearts of man. Now, now you listen to the verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, not the entirety of the world, that's not what the text is saying, but the evil nature of the world. God so loved the evil nature of the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave, right? Correct? He gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Some folks have problems with it. They say, God gave his son, but no, he didn't plan it. That doesn't even make sense. If God is in fact sovereign, and in fact, Acts chapter 2 says it. And Peter remembering what John 3.16 says, right? Peter knows all of that. And he says, ultimately, it was God for us. Now, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Is God some kind of cosmic sadomasochist? Or is this the holy place? where he gives his own sacrifice for a people who cannot bring forth an unblemished lamb. Let's continue. He says he gave up, delivered, handed over. And then he uses a term, lest you think that's not enough. He says here, he says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He just layers it and layers it and layers it so that you would not be confused that it was an accident or that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was a plan B. Oh man, sin, now what do I do? I don't know what to do. I guess I better send my son 
Because now they did something that is out of my control that I don't know about and I can't solve now. So I better send Jesus that is a weak God, that is not a biblical God, that is not what the God of the Bible tells about himself. He gave his gift for you, Christian. The word predetermined comes from the word horizo, where we get the word horizon. You can hear it, horizo, right? It means marked off boundaries or limits. It means to decide, to determine, to resolve, to appoint. It's used in Acts chapter 17, 31. He has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It is not a plan B. Oh, don't you love that? And then he uses the word plan, which is a, means to counsel, a counsel, a purpose, a decree, a design. Jesus was sent there ultimately by the ordaining of God the Father. When it's my anniversary or when it's my wife's birthday, my wife likes me to plan something far in advance. You understand? Men, are you there with me? Oh, you're going to get in trouble if you're not there with me, right? She doesn't like it, right? If I just throw something together. Correct? Correct? Oh, it's your birthday tomorrow. I see a lot of men, you're getting hot behind the ears right now, right? Dads, husbands. Why? Because she wants to know that I had what? Forethought. You understand? That I thought about her. She wants to know that there was a plan. She wants to know that... I've been planning a certain thing for her. Why? Because it shows that I, she was on my mind. Do you understand? Are you following? If you are in Christ, this is the truth. You are on the heart of all God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from before time. You personally, not you potentially. You actually not you as a possibility. He thought of you and he gave his gift who would come at the proper time to die for your sins. The greatest gift giver giving the greatest gift for your greatest need. Amen? There's no amen? Man, there's amen all over that. Amen? That makes me happy that is love brothers and sisters election and the sovereignty of God and all these things it really is a love story don't let anyone twist it for you don't let the devil twist it in your mind it is a love story given personally to each individual of the body of Better than me planning out a gift for my wife. It is a gift from all of eternity.
Now, he says foreknowledge, the word there for foreknowledge. Again, as we look at texts, we don't look at a, a dictionary to find the definition. The word for foreknowledge does not simply mean knowing beforehand. The word for foreknowledge is uh, prognosco. It is a, I know before, it is an experiential knowing. It is a, it is a pointing of knowing. It's a selective knowledge, here's one commentator says, which regards one with favor and makes one an object of love and thus approaches the idea of foreordination. It's used in Romans chapter 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, that same group, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So it's the group whom he loves. It's the group whom he sanctifies. It's the group whom he justifies. And it's the group whom he will glorify. First Peter says that you were elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Not that he knew you would choose him because brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, we would not choose him. That is not in my heart. It wasn't in my heart and it wasn't in yours. And I can guarantee it because Romans says it. No one seeks after God. No one desires after him. All our, our throats are an open grave. The poison of aspas are under our lips. We don't want this Christ over us. And Christ has to come and show us his love. And he doesn't defeat our will. He melts it. And his beauty is shown to us. And we bow. Thank you, Christ. And now knowing... That he loved me before the foundation of the world. I know also that in Acts it says. We are to give the gospel freely. And Christ will bring them in. Amen. So. His death was specifically planned. By a sovereign God. Huh, that's heavy. His death was savagely executed by sinful men. Now you're going to see the intersect. Here's the intersect of God's sovereign will and man's responsibility in the same verse. He says here, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You nailed to a cross speaks of the kind of death, his humiliating death, by the hands of godless men. You put him to death. God allowed evil men to do exactly what they wanted to do, yet God still accomplished his purpose. God, they did what was in their hearts, and God let them do it, thereby being guilty of his death. Remember when Jesus said, as, as Judas was coming, and he, as he was bringing the soldiers, Jesus says the same thing. Okay? He says, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man that he is betrayed. Do you hear? It is determined for me to be betrayed, but woe to that man he will be judged. God himself allows him to do what is in his heart already. And he accomplishes his purposes. Christ's death did not disprove he was the Messiah as they thought, but rather it was quite the opposite. Christ's death was the credential of his Messiahship. 
And I have to take you to a verse for you to see this. In Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This was the part that puzzled them that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant. They could not fathom that the Messiah would come and rule, which we believe he will rule even politically when he comes back. But they didn't know how this fit in, this, this suffering servant. We know this to be the very prophecy of Christ himself. He was despised, verse 3, and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, we did not esteem him. Verse 4, there's the blessing. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Notice the personal pronouns. Personal pronouns. First person personal pronouns, he says. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, he is talking about the condition of man, okay? Like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused, did you see that? Verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all. To fall on him. Sovereign, specific plan of God himself. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Verse 9, prophecy, his grace was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea, remember? Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. There was a pleasure that God the Father received when the Son was crushed. Is it that he liked that Jesus was suffering? He was happy that he was suffering? No, keep reading. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring offspring he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the lord will prosper in his hand so what is he saying it's not in the suffering in itself that god the father was pleased it was in what the suffering accomplished and the suffering accomplished what a guilt offering that was acceptable for the wrath of god that was supposed to be on all of men and he says and he will see his offspring that is, the spiritual birth of all these people who now trust in Christ because of the offering that was given. And he says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Brothers and sisters, in the orchestra of God's wonderful plan, he has allowed his son to die for us. The first credential of Jesus' Messiahship was his life. The second was his death. The third was Jesus' resurrection. The third was Jesus' resurrection. Verse 24 to 32. We look at the testimony explained. The testimony 
explained. And we see in verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible. Death could not hold him. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said this about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Jesus Christ could not be held in the grave. And then it's given the prophecy. David says of him, he saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. Look at verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your holy men to undergo decay. And David, and now Peter's looking at that psalm that David is that David wrote, and he says, David says of him. David was prophesying of Christ. And he says here, that, that is, as the testimony is prophesied, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. What does this mean? He's saying the testimony is fulfilled in Christ. Why? If you, see, if you follow, he says here, verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades here is the realm of the dead. And he is just saying that Jesus will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. He will not suffer his body, the Holy One. David didn't call himself Holy One. He says the Holy One will not suffer decay. It will not suffer rot. It will not suffer corruption. And then Peter takes that and he says, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch, David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's saying David was not speaking about him. David was speaking about Jesus. He was not speaking about himself. Look, he says here, verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. David saw the resurrection of Christ. He saw that he would come back to life. He looked ahead for it. He expected it. And so what he is saying here is, you know where David is buried. You know his bones are there. You know he, was, he is rotted. You know he is, he, is, he is turned back to ashes. He's turned back to dust. But the greater David, this holy one, would never suffer decay. And do you ever think about that? Why? Why is it that Jesus did not suffer decay? It is to prove the Redeemer's power over every aspect of sin that was put upon us, even the corruption of death itself. And now, he says, David's present tomb shows exactly that it was not David he was talking about. It was the Christ. It was the Christ. So there's Jesus' life. There's Jesus' death. There's Jesus' resurrection. And lastly, there's Jesus' exaltation. Jesus' exaltation. Verses 33 to 35. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that right hand is a position of, it's a, his unique position. It is a position of favor. When you say someone is at my right hand, it is a seat of favor the seat of prominence. And then he says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is his unique gift, he's 
going back to what he, what he was explaining in the beginning of his sermon, that they were calling them drunk, if you recall, because they were speaking in tongues. And Peter says, they're not drunk. This was the gift of the Holy Spirit because he has gone up. And then he says, who has poured forth, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord to my Lord. His unique rule, it was not David. But verse 35, he says, I will make your enemies a footstool, footstool to your feet. Verse 36, his unique name. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, the highest name, the highest prominence, the highest status, God has named him the Lord, that is, who owns your life, whom you should be bowing to. And then he calls him the Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Messiah, the anointed one. This Jesus you crucified. And so we close with this. And it's here's the appeal. Will you bow to this one who died for the sins of man? Will you give your life? Are you still sitting on some fence, man? Every day that you sit on a fence, you're spurning his name. He died for you so you could receive fullness and forgiveness. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son came for us. He was a gift ordained for us. He was planned for us. You gave your son, not as an afterthought, but to show your glory and to give us forgiveness in Christ. We thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you thought of us. We pray, Father, you would help us to sing, help us to praise you. Lord, help us to uh, worship you even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.